Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Big COVID week in New Zealand. Auckland has an opening date. Vaccine passes are being issued. We'll get booster shots soon. The virus is spreading inexorably, it seems, down the North Island into the South Island. And we're making plans for the holiday season. Hard to know whether to be glad or sad. And there are so many variables that we cannot see the future by comparing ourselves with other countries. New South Wales case numbers have fallen since the state reopened last month. Singapore's numbers have rocketed despite high vaccinations. And in the UK, 44,000 plus new cases yesterday, 157 deaths. While in Europe, Germany and Austria have reintroduced restrictions. In fact, Austria is going into a full lockdown. Dr. Chris Smith, epidemiologist, joins me now. Hi, Chris. Welcome back. Hello, Kim. Virologist, actually. Epidemiologists oh, are much I'm brighter sorry. than I am. So I'm, I'm just I'm the virus sorry. guy. That's all right. I'll let yeah, you. Yeah, and so you much okay? easier to say. Yeah, indeed. I'm very and spell. Well, thank you. Uh, what on earth is happening in Europe? Why are these waves coming? Well, I think what's going on is that where we saw back in the summer, the UK seeing a huge surge in cases, because it did, and that was centred around what we were dubbing Freedom Day, as we progressively released restrictions and came out of lockdown, and people began to meet more, do more, go out more, associate, socialise more, they transmitted the virus more. But what it did so was under the moderating influence of summer. And that meant people did their those things outdoors, and that had the effect of, of doing natural social distancing. It slowed down the rate of transmission. So we saw the same sort of area under the curve, and we're still seeing that. But these other countries have only opened things up like we did more recently. And they've opened up in the face of winter. And that means that people aren't doing this under the moderating influence of natural social distancing out under the sun. They're doing it indoors. And as a result, they're seeing probably more transmissions for that reason. That's part of the equation. The other part of the equation is they're seeing a lot of outbreaks and cases among very young people. Although Europe did have a policy of vaccinating children, they started at age 11 and up, as did many countries, as did the UK. We were actually quite late to that party. But what we saw in the UK was with the opening up, a shift down into younger people, 5 to 11-year-olds, began to account for a significant number of cases. That's now fueling a lot of these cases on the continent as well. So the combined influence of all of these things, lower vaccination rates in general, opening up things in the face of winter, facilitating transmission, is leading to high levels of cases in some countries with the reimposition of restrictions. What about the issue of the waning power of the vaccination then? Well, that's superimposed on top because what we are seeing and have learned since the beginning of the year when we began to roll out these vaccines is that the protection they confer initially is very, very good and people are protected from both catching the infection but also succumbing to severe disease. 
But with time, while the majority of people do retain that protection against severe disease, more than uh, 95% protection against severe disease, the number of people who are protected against infection actually does decline, and it declines to maybe half. Now, that's because there seem to be sort of two thresholds of antibody levels that are needed to protect you. There's a higher threshold where if you're above that, you just don't get infected. And this is because you make enough antibody to protect your nose and throat, a mucosal resistance, as it were, plus protection of the lungs. So you just don't succumb to infection. But because coronaviruses and the vaccines against them don't produce long-term immunity, with time, there is a dwindling of the immune response and you fall below that threshold where you can get infected, but you hopefully remain above the threshold where you are still protected from severe disease. And where the boosters come in is that some people, after a period of time, begin to slip below that second threshold of being protected against severe disease. And that's where the booster is intended to push people back up, hopefully above that threshold and ideally above the upper threshold so they don't actually get infected. And that has a very powerful moderating effect as well because it robs the virus of potential victims to infect. I see the booster jabs are going to be added to England's vaccine pass for overseas travel purposes, which is interesting. After the booster or the third jab, are we looking at further boosters? I mean, where will it end, the booster business? Well, let's explain the semantics around the third jab because it isn't actually a booster because there is this rather difficult definition difference here. We've got some people getting their third dose and some people getting boosters. Why is the distinction? Well, we realised earlier in the year that, in fact, some people, particularly those who are immunosuppressed or have some kind of immunocompromising illness, don't make a very good response to just two doses of the vaccine. So actually they need a third dose to push themselves up to the equivalent level of protection for the most part that most people who get two jabs would have. The booster is what's being given to people who've completed their vaccine course, whether that's two doses or three doses in this instance, and that confers upon them a reminder how to re- how to respond to coronavirus and pushes them back up to where they would have been after their second dose. So actually the third dose and the booster are not quite the same thing, and that's why they've created that slightly confusing distinction. But what we don't know is what does the long-term future hold? No one has a crystal ball. Does one dose of booster do enough? Will the virus make some kind of handbrake turn and change dramatically, necessitating an update of the vaccines? Will we continue in this relentless cycle of having to boost people, wait for the immunity to to wane away, boost them again? Or will the virus just retreat after this season and also superimposed on that, do older people need more boosting than younger people? You've taken all the questions out of my mouth, Chris, but I haven't got the answers, have you? We don't know. And that's the key thing. And that's what people are learning this Mm. summer and this winter. They'll be watching the trajectory of this. They'll be watching what happens. We learned, didn't we, over this year, what happens when you vaccinate elderly people versus younger people. We see that all people lose their immunity to coronavirus, but the older people do it faster, which is why they were front of the queue in most countries for boosters. But will they need a reminder for their immune system come, say, next next UK spring? Or will they retain enough immunity by then that if the virus doesn't change, they may not need this anymore? That's going to be the critical question because we know that with some things, 
if you keep on flogging the immune system with boosters and vaccines, once, you, once you've done that a few times, you get to a point where actually the immune system is consolidated enough that you're protected in the long term. So that oh, will be okay. the key question that they'll be looking to explore as we go forward. And then, of course, you've got the issue of herd immunity, which you've got this kind of perfect point, I imagine, where the in the ideal world... The vaccines and the boosters will carry us through until we have sufficient herd immunity to protect our health services, which is the ultimate aim, isn't it? When we launched into this, our chief scientific officer, Sir Patrick Vallance, presented at a Downing Street press briefing the concept of herd immunity. And this was a novel thing for the majority of people, certainly for the journalists who are in that room. And as a result, they took this to mean some kind of government strategy to basically kill off half the population by taking the risk that some people would die in vaccinating the population by infection for real. In fact, herd immunity is a very sound virological and epidemiological principle. It's all about the fact that if enough people are immune to something by whatever route in a population, whether they've caught it or, or they've been vaccinated, eventually you get to a point where there are so few vulnerable people around in a population that their chances of bumping into an infected person and therefore maintaining a chain of transmission become so remote that the virus just doesn't transmit. What we know that you need to achieve that effect is a vaccine that does confer an interruption in transmission. What we had hoped with these coronavirus vaccines is that they would interrupt transmission. And indeed, they do initially, but they're not perfect. They are effectively a bit leaky. And as time goes on, they become more leaky. People can become infected, although not severely unwell. So the idea of herd immunity to prevent transmission chains in a country, that probably doesn't work. Herd immunity to stop people becoming severely unwell, that definitely does work and that, that is a potential concept. But really what that requires is that we vaccinate pretty much everybody to make sure especially those people who are very highly susceptible are well protected. So even if they do run into the virus, they don't succumb to it. There is considerable controversy in this country um, about vaccine mandates and the argument put by a lot of people is that if we can still transmit the Delta virus after being vaccinated, does that not pose a danger in relying on vaccination? Can you tell us what is the reduced risk of transmission after vaccination? Or is that a moving target because of the waning efficacy of it? And the fact that it has age-specific effects and age-specific yeah. lifetime. So, yes, this is why some countries, England included, have not gone down the route of vaccine passports. Because what does that really mean? And as you alluded to earlier, when we're adding booster jabs now to vaccine passports, what does that mean for people that haven't had a booster yet or a third dose if they're immunocompromised? This is all a bit murky and we just don't know is the answer to this. At best, in my view, these sorts of vaccine passport approaches really act as a stimulus to get vaccinated. And the people actually who really get stimulated the best, the youngest ones, because what we've seen in the UK is that uptake was extraordinarily high among older people who were the most vulnerable. It was 96% among some age groups. 
among younger people, we had maybe a 30% failure of uptake until fairly recently. It's gone up a bit more since then. But younger people were less inclined to get vaccinated. Why? Because the government had basically spent the last year telling them, well, you're at very low risk from coronavirus, which is why you can go off to school with impunity. But it's kind of backfired because when you then want them to get vaccinated, they're saying, well, you told me I had a high likelihood of being hit by lightning or run over by my school bus than having a fatal run in with coronavirus. So I don't think I actually need to get vaccinated. And so then this whole idea of, well, let's bring in some kind of pass that actually says, well, if you don't have this, you don't get into this venue or that venue. And that has translated into an uptake in uh, an an uptick and uptake in some places. But then you lead to discrimination issues because you're then discriminating against people on 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 health grounds which makes many people uncomfortable. And that's why there is uproar in Austria that has announced it will be the first country to mandate vaccination for its population from next year. So let me get this straight. Vaccination is is not the fix-all and it is a leaky kind of a system and you don't really know how infectious you remain after vaccination. But to make vaccination mandatory or to issue vaccination passports, it's an incentive to get vaccinated. I feel like this is a circular argument that is in favour of those who are against vaccination. Can you argue against that? What is absolutely the case is that these vaccines are stupendously good at protecting people from severe disease and they're 95% effective. If you take somebody, and I've dealt now with loads of outbreaks in hospitals, in people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, who, if I'd been dealing with the self-same outbreak a year ago, these would have been people, and I don't mean to be indiscreet, would be off to the mortuary by now. Now you're dealing with people who don't even have any symptoms and they don't even know they've got coronavirus because they've been vaccinated. And the symptomatic ones are the ones that haven't. And here's a statistic that really make people sit up and take notice. Our current statistic for the UK is that about a half to two thirds of the patients in intensive care with severe coronavirus illness in Britain at the moment are unvaccinated. And they make up less than 10% of the population. So in other words, it's um, very, very effective at stopping you ending up in hospital. And for that reason, absolutely everybody should get one because Everyone has a chance, whether it's a big one or a small one. Everyone's got a chance of ending up severely unwell. I saw a kiddie in paediatric intensive care with very bad coronavirus infection today. So it can affect young kids as well. And you can stop that with vaccination. But what we can't do is to make a case that, well, this will definitely arrest transmission. What it will do is slow down transmission through a population. It will slow it right down very soon after you've been vaccinated and slow it down less a long time down the track when people have been vaccinated because it's a bit leaky. But if you've got something that moderates the rate of infectious spread, it's really good at stopping you getting big spikes in the population that could end up overwhelming healthcare services. So either way, it's a really good thing to get vaccinated, but you just have to manage the expectations about what we can achieve with the vaccine. We cannot eradicate this disease. So we have to plan for it to be there indefinitely, at least in the foreseeable future, make plans that factor that in. But bear in mind, we can get our confidence back. We can get back on our bike because we can keep people out of hospital who would previously be at severe risk if they caught this.
do the COVID vaccinations wane more quickly than other vaccinations? Some vaccinations last forever, really. Why mm. Why is this so apparently fragile? Well, think about the flu as well. I mean, we're pretty comfortable with the idea that we, if particularly in certain age groups and in certain groups who have certain underlying disorders, we get a flu jab every year. Or we yeah, get but a I've always jab. thought... I mean, I've always thought wrongly, as it turns out, possibly, that the flu, <laughs> the flu jab lasted a year until you got the next one. But maybe the flu jab wears off in how long? It does. And the flu jab that we give people is very good at provoking the production of antibodies. Those antibodies are very good at protecting you about 60-70% of the time against that season's suite of flu viruses. But then two effects kick in. One is that you lose antibodies because the same thing happens with these flu vaccines as happens with your coronavirus vaccines and and with natural infection actually. You get a decline in the antibody levels if you don't stimulate the immune system. And the other is that the flu is a moving target. Now the flu is a more agile moving target than coronavirus. Coronavirus evolves a bit more slowly. Some viruses, coronaviruses included, do not produce long-term immunity. The coronaviruses that naturally infect humans that we've been dealing with for decades before COVID came along, those produce immunity that lasts months to years. So maybe three or four years worth of immunity after a dose of coronavirus, then you've lost your immunity and your susceptibility returns. So unsurprisingly, when we vaccinate people, we see a similar effect, strong initial protection, but we have this expectation that it's going to slip away with time. And if we want to keep people out of hospital, we have to boost them. So we're focusing our booster efforts on the most vulnerable, the oldest people. The Spanish flu seemed to run its course and burn itself out. This is a question from a listener as well. Will COVID not do that too? You said, no, we're never going to get rid of it. We got rid of the Spanish flu. Why can't we get rid of COVID? Well, we didn't actually. And... Um, Spanish flu was H1N1 and it continues to circulate, really. We've still got H1N1 strains circulating. What it did was to get to everybody very, very quickly because it was a brand new virus that no one had ever seen before. Therefore, no one had an immunity. So it spread really efficiently, really fast to everybody because everyone was susceptible. It produced a ferocious rate of infection, spread very fast and left in its wake a population that was, let's face it, either dead or better and immune. So what viruses do is effectively, like a bushfire, burn themselves out of fuel. And that means they then retreat into much smaller fires that continue to smoulder at the margins, but they don't produce this enormous conflagration. And this is the same, where we will see a big susceptible population, the human race, catching this virus they become immune, they leave in their wake casualties or people who've recovered and are immune, robbing the virus of people to infect. So it then slows right down in its trajectory, retreats into the background and just smoulders. And what will happen is that this will join the ranks of the other four coronaviruses that cause common colds and produce similar common colds in years to come. But because we'll have been meeting this virus throughout our lives, starting when we're little, by the time we're 80... We'll have met it so many times that it won't bother us. But at the moment, because people in their 80s and 70s are meeting this thing for the first time and they're already a bit vulnerable, they obviously get a more dramatic immune response and they have a much more severe run-in with it. Is there a country, Chris, that you think has been outstanding in its treatment of COVID? Mm, every country has, it's, has done things well and done things less well. 
Uh, everyone holds up as a shining light some of the uh, Eastern Asian countries, citing the fact that they've had run-ins with these sorts of things before and know how to deal with them. But at the same time, those countries have different demographies, they have different human rights records, they have different ways of dealing with these sorts of things, which means one has to be very cautious about making apples with apples and apples with oranges comparisons, which is what we're sort of doing with COVID. The Belgian health minister, Maggie de Bloch, as she was then, she's no longer health minister, but she actually said right at the beginning of all of this, no one across Europe counts COVID the same. And the point she was making is that we have to be very cautious about comparing between countries because every country is different. It has different population densities, different population makeup, how people get to work, where they work, how they live, etc. And therefore, what works in one place may not work so well in others. If you had a totalitarian state that uh, didn't really care about human rights and was just going to take people off to prison, if they said, well, I'm not getting vaccinated, you say, right, prison for you. Uh, yes, you could probably control this sort of thing very, very well. But would, would people say they'd like to live in that country? Possibly not. Possibly not. Um, somebody has asked why some vaccines last a lifetime, which is a very good question I asked the other way around. But why do some vaccines not wear out? Yep. Well, the answer is that many of the vaccines that confer very long-term protection are live vaccines. Measles, mumps, rubella, the MMR, is very effective as a lifelong vaccine because when you in inject that into people, the viruses that are introduced into the body are weakened forms of the real virus and they grow, they show the immune system the full hand that the virus can play and they therefore produce a very good, robust, both cellular response and antibody response to the infection. And it just so happens that those viruses then confer on you long-term protection, as does natural infection with those viruses. But some viruses which have a different approach to spreading and transmitting in populations have evolved to subvert the immune system. Coronavirus is among them. And when they infect you, they actually throw a spanner in the immune works, stopping your immune system making and consolidating the same kind of response that some of these other viruses do. So as a result, you don't make as, as profound a response as you otherwise could. And that's why you return to vulnerability. Um, somebody says cholera vaccine only lasts six months. Is that right? Well, cholera is a bacterium. Vibrio cholerae is a little lancet-shaped bacterium. And wh when we vaccinate people against some infectious diseases, we don't go for the bacterium or the organism itself. We go for the thing that it makes that's bad. The reason cholera is bad is because it makes a toxin. When it gets into your body, it produces a chemical that basically crowbars open a signaling system on the wall of your intestine, leading to massive secretion of intestinal juices and fluid into your intestines, which is why you get this profuse diarrhoea. One way you can stop that thing having that, that awful effect is to make the body make antibodies so that when the bug produces the toxin, it just gets soaked up straight away. It's like having a giant sponge in your intestines so it can't actually um, make you unwell. So whooping cough, we do the same thing. We, we give people uh, vaccines against the toxin that the pertussis bacterium would make that would injure your airways. And in that way, you might still transiently get the infection but you don't get the bad consequences of the infection but sometimes those things are not very long lived whooping cough or pertussis we used to think one dose when you're little of the jabs you'll be fine for life spoke to a lady from oxford university a few years ago and she said nope we've got some pretty good data now showing that by the time you're adolescent you've lost your immunity to whooping cough 
and you mm. can catch it again, but you just don't notice as much when you're older because you brush it off. But we had, I'm embarrassed to say, in our virology department a few years ago, we had a little outbreak of whooping cough among the senior staff who were just sitting there coughing away in their offices, spreading whooping cough. And they all didn't realise what it was because they all thought they'd been vaccinated against it. So there you are heading into winter. Well, you're in winter already, of course, and we're heading into summer. So things are looking grim for you guys and possibly not so grim for us what do you think well virologists and scientists here are actually pretty bullish about christmas because we think that because the uk opened up in the summertime which is sort of what new zealand is doing and had that moderating influence of the good weather good ventilation natural social distancing people being outside and it tempered the spread of the infection through the population because as one virologist put it to me this week when I was talking to him he said look uh, you've got to face it Uh, everybody is going to have their day with this virus at some point and the only question is do you want to face that day with your immune system prepared and ready or with it ill-equipped because that will make a very big difference to your outcome but one way or another it's going to happen So actually, by us doing what we did in the summer, many people are saying, now we go into winter because we've robbed the virus of potential victims and we have also reinforced our infection immunity through booster programmes. 14 million people have been boosted now in record time, most of them the most vulnerable, but now they've brought the age right down to 40 and up and 16 and 17-year-olds are getting a second dose just starting from this week. It means that actually... Many are now modelling and predicting that the virus is going to retreat more by the time that Christmas comes and we may see half as many people getting unwell each day as we're seeing at the moment by them. So people in the UK are quite bullish and optimistic at the moment. We think that Europe is sort of catching up with where we were, but this is no grounds for complacency. We're just going to have to watch and hope for the best. I will not wish you happy Christmas yet because I'm sure we'll speak again before then, but thank you. I hope so. That's all right. Nice to talk to you, Kim. Nice to talk to you, Dr Chris Smith.